All right. Um, we are in Exodus chapter 13. Uh, Exodus 13 has a lot of review in it. In fact, what you're going to find if you've been in the class um, is that we've seen almost all that's in Exodus 13 already, which is kind of interesting. As you say, why does things get, why does it get repeated? Well, there's an easy answer for why things get repeated, right? Because they basically excel their importance. Because they're, they're important, yeah. Um, but what's interesting here is what happens in Exodus. Exodus 12 is where we have the Passover. We have the instructions about the Passover. We have the instructions about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's going to be repeated in this chapter. But what's interesting is that is where God is telling Moses what to do. In chapter 13, Moses is instructing the people. So uh, Moses gets the instruction, then he passes it on to the to the people. What is happening is that these are the first instructions that the nation of Israel, which is now a nation, it wasn't that before, this is the first commands that the nation of Israel ever receives. So the picture in the Old Testament is of one nation being born out of another nation. In fact, the scripture refers to that. Uh, has anything like this ever happened, that one nation gives birth to another nation? It's never happened before, and it's never happened since. So Israel comes out, and in fact, you can think of the plagues as the, the pangs of childbirth. And then Israel is born, and they are now receiving their first instructions from God. Um, this, what's happening to Israel is, can be used as a metaphor for what happens for the Christian life as well. And so that's the way we're going to approach it. Israel is just born, and now they have some instructions, and we see how God works among them. So uh, that's the way we're going to approach the passage. There's actually four separate ideas that come out of chapter 13, and we'll try and go through all of them. Again, part of them we've already talked about, so we don't need to spend a lot of time on some of these. But um, let's go ahead and read the passage. Uh, it's not particularly long, but... Um, we want to read through that, starting at chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, remember, again, Israel has just been, in a sense, pushed out of Egypt. They aren't released from Egypt, right? They're, they're really forced out. The people are saying, go, get out. Um, uh, take our gold, take our silver, um, just go. And, and now they are now a nation. And so this is, that that's the context of what's happened. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten today. In the month of Abib you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No unleavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, 
It is because of the, what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, you shall give it and shall give it to you. You shall set apart for the Lord all that opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. Or if you shall not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborns of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Egypt solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and shall carry up my and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at uh, Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day. And the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. Um, we begin by God asking Moses and the people to consecrate to them the firstborn. Um, and it actually is sort of broken up. He talks about that twice. So I'm going to deal with that first, and then we're going to talk about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Um, verse thir- chapter 13, 1, the Lord says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whether it's the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. So there's the principle. Uh, God um, passed over the firstborn of Israel by the shed blood of the Passover lamb. But those people, those animals, and those firstborn belong to him. He ransomed them. He paid for them. And they belong to him. Um, now, we know from a previous lesson, I'm not going to go into that, later on, God took and substituted the firstborn for the Levites. And he did that actually in a transaction. So this doesn't happen throughout all of Israel. And then from that point on, all of the firstborn of the, Le- or the Levites and their animals represent the firstborn. They're set aside for the Lord. Um, if you jump over to... Um, verse 11, it continues talking about this um, and repeats that. And then if you look at verse 13, it says, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you shall not redeem it, you shall break its neck. 
Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Uh, so you had, uh, if the, the principle was, if it's a lamb or a clean animal, that animal was offered as a sacrifice. Why was a donkey not offered? Why, why did you have to offer a lamb for a donkey? No, or why did you have to break the neck of the donkey? Because the donkey was unclean. The donkey was an unclean animal. Okay, so to to sacrifice it would have been wrong. So your choice was to either sacrifice another animal for it. Uh, I guess the donkey is a pretty valuable animal. Yeah, donkey is a valuable animal. So the firstborn. By the way, the the phrase is it means firstborn males. Okay, firstborn males. Uh, the the donkey you either sacrifice an animal for it or you break its neck. Why do you suppose you break its neck instead of no shedding of blood? Yeah, they did not want this to look like a sacrifice. Okay, because it's an unclean animal. Now, um, just so you know, and sometimes we forget this. The pagan cultures around them claimed the firstborn as well. You've all heard of Moloch. That was one of the gods of the Philistines. Um, when you had a firstborn, um, I don't know, son, or I assume it was son, uh, you offered that child to the gods. But you didn't offer it um, as a living sacrifice, you offered it. So Moloch was the fire god, and he burned your first infant. What God is doing is taking this and redeeming that. The firstborn does belong to God, but the firstborn belongs to God as, as theirs to live for him, uh, that he offered up as a sacrifice. But there's a really important principle here. And the principle is that whoever God redeems, Whatever is redeemed for God is consecrated to him. Right? That's what the first verse says. Consecrate to me all the first part. Why? Because God has paid for them. They belong to him. Their lives are set apart for him. Everybody see the connection to us? Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. You have been bought back by God. We are all firstborn. Right? We are all firstborn. We are all redeemed. The old covenant, the firstborn was set aside, and the new covenant, everyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ is redeemed. And what does that mean for you? It means that your life is given back to him. Willingly as the appropriate response for what he's done. Um, if you go to <clears throat> Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, famous verses that a lot of you could quote. But I think it's important. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, spiritual worship. Why you were bought back. The lamb has been shed for you. I hate to say it, but you're like the donkey. Okay? That there's only two choices. You are either ransomed and redeemed, or you're doomed. Or you're doomed. 
There's either death or there's life. Those are the only two choices. You're either set apart for God or you are, or, or, or you're condemned to death. Exact same choice that the donkey had. We are to give our lives as a living sacrifice. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, starting in, or actually verse 20. <clears throat> actually, we can go back just a little bit, start at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That is the same principle that's coming out of, of Exodus. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brother, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Our lives will be lived for God uh, once we've been redeemed. And if we go back to 1 Peter, which we were just in a few uh, months ago, uh, in 1 Peter 1, um, starting at verse, actually, we should go back earlier, talks about living holy lives. Um, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So that's the picture. Now, there's something interesting in this passage as well, and that is that God asks as part of this redemption that this get explained to our children. So in verse 14, and when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. In fact, twice in this passage, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and this, we're told to pass this on to our children. We should be talking to our children about how God has pulled us out of slavery. You know, it's real easy not to do it, right? It's real easy not to do it. We live in a Christian home. We were saved a long time ago. We go to church. We do this. We, we do all this stuff, but we, do we talk to our children about the fact that we were redeemed out of slavery, that our lives belong to him, that we are ransomed for his service? And I'm sure we do, but I think sometimes it's just easy to sort of, that's just who we are, and, and forget to, to remind our, our children about it. So that's the first part. Any comments or questions on that first part? By the way, you might say, well, Scott, maybe we're stretching this a little bit. If you, we're not going to, we're going to turn to it a little bit later. If you, but in fact, let's, let's do this now. First Corinthians 10. Um, interesting passage, actually. Uh, we looked at it when we started Exodus. It says, for I want you to know, brothers, First Corinthians 10.1, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses and the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual bread and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the rock that, 
that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nonetheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place ex as examples for us that we might not desire people as they did. Uh, Paul goes and applies the Exodus to the people and says these things were written as an example. So um, I think it's, it's very valid to look at this and apply it directly to our lives out of Exodus chapter 13. All right. Second is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, we've already talked about that. The Feast of Unleavened Bread at this point hasn't been um, imbued with spiritual meaning yet. Why did they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Apart from the fact that God told them to do it. Okay, go ahead, Matt. Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was a uh, part of the Passover, and also it was kind of a, I would say it was a, a reminder of to live, not like the rest of the world. The symbol of the Unleavened Bread is a spirit to the spirit without sin, or it has been removed. Yeah. A reminder to But why is it part of why is it part of the Passover? Okay, and very good. You guys are all uh, all of that's good, but there's a really important reason why this feast of unleavened bread. Gets so leaven is uh, sin. Leaven is sin, all throughout the scripture. I'm after something and nobody's giving it to me. <laughs> is it what what happened on that night? They had to leave in a hurry. They had to leave in such a hurry that the leaven, the bread, did not have a chance to leaven. Okay, so I don't bake, but I guess when you put leaven in, you have to give it some time. Is that right? Those of you who bake, I was going to say ladies, but there's some of you men who probably bake bread as well. So the, the picture, the unleavened bread is associated with Passover because of how uh, the, 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 the speed with which God did what he did. In other words, they're sitting down to have their Passover and And God delivers them. It's like childbirth. The baby comes. And, 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 and in the middle of their meal, before they've had a chance to have the bread leaven, they are forced out. By the way, that's a strong hand, right? In other words, God said, I'm going to force you out of Egypt with a strong hand. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is there to remind us of how God delivered them from their, their slavery. The proper response to that and now we'll get back to what everybody said. What's the proper response then to being delivered from slavery? It's to live lives that are not leavened. We aren't like the rest of the world. For leaven represents sin. And that's why back in, again, 1 Corinthians 10, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast. And the Jews were given instructions to take that leaven and to get it out of their house. Um, I made mention of something April commented on this, so I want to go back to it. Remember I told you that the, the Jewish, um, uh, before the Passover, 
the Jews go through and they do a thorough house cleaning, and it's spring cleaning. And they clean the entire house, and they get every bit of leaven out of the house. Um, and by the way, that would include any bread that has already risen. It, it involves everything that has any leaven in it. And then they take a little bit of leaven, something that's leavened, and they put it in a place where the father knows, and he goes through the house with a feather, checking, and he finds the one little bit of leaven that they didn't find. So he cleans the last bit. That's a ceremony that they put in place. And then they sacrifice the Passover. They, they, they celebrate the Passover. Uh, April pointed out, they've got it backwards. What comes first? The Passover. And then the leaven. Don't we always want to try and do that? We turn it around. Our life has to be made right so that God's sacrifice applies to us, but it's not that way. Even as Christians, we do this sometimes. We begin to think that our, our salvation in some way or our standing with God depends upon what we've done. But it's actually the proper response to the, to the Passover lamb being shed. And that's why Paul says it so clearly. Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Then keep the feast. We don't keep the feast first so that the Passover applies. Did the people in Israel deserve the Passover lamb, the, the, the fact that God passed over them? Not at all. For once it happened, they belonged to him and their lives were to be lived differently. Go back to that verse out of 1 Corinthians. Um, do you not know you were bought with a price? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore what? Glorify God. How do we glorify God? By living lives holy and pleasing. By living lives in obedience to Him. And once again, we are to be talking about this to our children. Um, we should be explaining to them why it is that we do this. And verse 9, it says, It shall be assigned to you on your hand and a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And you shall keep this statute as a, at its appointed time from year to year. So the picture was, this should always be something that we're talking about. And he says, write it on your hand, put it on your forehead between your eyes. Now we know the Jews took that very literally. Right? And they, they uh, Orthodox Jews even today wear a little phylactery, which hangs down. It's a little pouch so that when they look, they're always seen and it's supposed to remind them of the law. And then in the Gospels, Jesus says, yeah, what did they do? They keep making their phylacteries bigger and more elaborate. So before long, they're writing this big thing there and they missed the point. The point is, we have been redeemed and we're to live lives that are holy to God. Okay? Any comments on Feast of Unleavened Bread? And by the way, everybody who said the Feast of Unleavened rep represents sin, which is, that's exactly right. We're to live lives that are holy, but not to earn God's favor as a result of what he has done for us. All right, so now we have been saved. We have a calling. And how does God go about then? Um, does he just leave us? Are we left to our own devices? No, we have the next part, and this is brand new, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. So verse 17, 
that tells us that when they were let go, God didn't lead them by the way of the Philistines because they weren't quite ready for war. Um, but he took them uh, by the way of the Red Sea. I'm kind of paraphrasing. They took the bones of Joseph and it tells us in verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them by the, along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. <coughs> um, the, the, the pillar of cloud, and I'm sure most of you know this, pillar of fire represents the Holy Spirit. Re represents the Spirit of Christ. Um, what was the purpose of the pillar? To guide them. To guide them? What else? Was that? It, it did represent the presence of God amongst the people. So it's to guide them, it's to represent or remind them of the presence of God. Any other reason? Okay, um, yeah, I think does the cloud speak to Moses? I'm not sure if it does. You're going to have to check that out for me, Mary. Yeah. So a pillar represents, yeah. Okay. Um, remember at the Red Sea, what did the cloud do? It protected them. It actually went and got between them and their so um, the, the picture is that, that we've been saved. We're to live lives that are pleasing to him. But God does not leave us to our own devices. He sends the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus is leaving. He says, I have to leave you. But it's better that I leave. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead you and guide you into all truth. In Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge, the security of our of our uh, salvation. So he is our protector. Uh, he is the presence of God in our lives. And our job is to follow him. Right? What was the people's one thing that they had to do? Follow the cloud. Follow the pillar of fire. By the way, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, they probably didn't hike day and night. In a desert culture like that, a desert climate, you, you start very early in the wee hours because it's cool and you march until mid-morning and you stop because it's hot and you spend the day trying to stay cool, that's possible. So they had their little air conditioners out there now, little fans or whatever. And then later in the evening, sometimes when it gets cool again, you march for some time. So the main part of the day is spent resting. So they, they kind of do uh, a part of each, so pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. Now, interesting. Where, where does the, the cloud lead them? <laughs> out into the desert. Out into the wilderness. So if you have a map of, and you probably can picture it in your mind. Here's Egypt. Right up from Egypt is Israel, right? Don't they border each other? It's, I think. Uh, Egypt's northeastern border would, would probably border Israel. It so borders Israel. 
So what's the fast way to go from Egypt to Israel? You just follow the sea. And they're up there in Goshen. Um, so they're way up high in, in the land. All they have to do is go a few miles. But what does God do? He takes them out into the wilderness. We find out there's actually two reasons for it. One is because they have to go to Mount Sinai. That was a promise that God made. He told Moses, I will bring you back to this mountain. Now, put yourself in the position of the Egyptians, not the Egyptians, Israelites. We're following the pillar. And the pillar is heading the right way, and then what does the pillar do? It turns and heads in the wilderness. Some of you would do this. What does that stupid pillar do? (laughs) Why is the cloud going into the wilderness? The short way... The way that'll get us there in a couple of days, or maybe a week at the most, is just right up the coast. And besides, it's pleasant walking along the coast, isn't it? Everybody like being by the ocean? Nice breezes, there's creeks that come down. We're heading out into the desert. Where are we gonna find food? Where are we gonna find water? We're not going to be comfortable in the desert. Why are we going that direction? that sound like any of our lives? Why is God doing this? Why, when I want to go that way, is God taking me this direction? And what God is doing is he's building trust. Uh, What's interesting is the reason it's given for it, in verse 17, when Pharaoh led the people, let the people go, God did not lead them by the land of the Philistines, Although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Um, God doesn't take them that way because there's something there that he knows that they are not ready for. And that is war. Now, there's a discussion on whether it's the Philistines that are they're going to be fighting with. They actually, most scholars think it's because there were Egyptian outposts all the way along that road. And so they would have been passing station after station. It doesn't make any difference. If they went up the sea rather than into the wilderness, they are going to encounter war. Now, doesn't God fight Israel's battles? I mean, who's really going to be fighting the battles? It's God. So you could read this and go, what difference does it make? God's going to fight the battles. But, but this is the fourth component, and that is that God leads us. We follow him uh, as a result of our faith. We first have to trust God to be able to follow him. Now you say, well, there's a cloud there and they're following, but he's saying people would turn back. They would go back to Egypt. They would turn around and go backwards. God gently leads his people. He leads them in the way they should go. And there are things that God knows that you and I are not ready for. And we follow after him and he takes us in the way that allows us to grow and learn to love and trust him. And if he doesn't do that, well, I shouldn't say that. God will do that. That's what this picture shows. So 
we see salvation, a life that's consecrated, a life that's led by the Spirit. And now we could spend some time talking, although we don't have much time, what does that look like? Obviously, spending time in God's Word, um, seeking to obey Him, learning to trust Him, doing things that we may not otherwise want to do because we feel like God has called us to do that or has given us instruction in His Word. Let me stop there. Any comments on the power of the fire of the cloud? I kind of find it interesting how he leads them away from battle, even though the scripture also says that people were equipped for battle. Yeah, um, I, I kind of was running out of time. That phrase, equipped for battle, is really hard to interpret. Um, it actually means five abreast, which would be how they would have marched into war. Yeah. So some Bibles will actually say it's five abreast. It's hard for me to imagine that they all marched out with children and donkeys and sheep and everything they were taking five abreast. Um, uh, it also could just mean that their loins were girded up. Uh, we know that they aren't really ready for battle. They wouldn't have as, I mean, the Egyptians gave them stuff, gold and silver and earrings, but they probably didn't give them shields and swords. Um, so we're not really sure what that what that means, but yeah. they were arrayed for battle anyways. They they looked like they were going out for war, but they they're like little kids with the plastic armor on. They're not ready for war. Okay. Um, now one last thing. Um, they take Joseph's bones. Okay, be real easy to skip this little part. They take Joseph's bones. Um, Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Why is that little thing? What is the historical reference? I, I think that's actually very significant. Because what we're talking about is following God by faith. And Joseph is a reminder of the covenant faithfulness of God and that the people of God put their faith and trust in God's promises to them. Um, If you go to, oh, by the way, just so you know, in Acts, when Stephen is preaching, he he actually says they took all of the bones of the patriarchs, not just Joseph's, but it was Joseph who asked for it. Um, Go over to Hebrews chapter um, 11. In this famous passage where we hear how people um, obeyed God, this is um, verse, chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then we're told um, uh, lost the verse. Verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then all the rest of the passage deals with people who had the conviction of things hoped for, the assurance of not, things not seen, who put their trust in God as a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And if you go to uh, verse 22, The only thing said about the great man Joseph is this. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus, 
of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his times. Um, if you're going to follow God, if you're going to follow that cloud, you need to be like Joseph. We need to be covenant people who trust in the covenant promises of God. People who say, God promised it, it's true. I'm going to follow God. My bones, I am an Israelite. I'm a, a child of, of the covenant. My bones don't belong in Egypt. They belong in, in the promised land. Um, he had a different vision than people. We're going to follow God. If those people are going to follow the cloud and learn by following it, they have to trust God. Trust them enough that, that they, they entrust their very bones to them. So uh, I think it's a wonderful passage, Exodus 13. It just, it just puts our Christian life and frames it um, the same way theirs was. We've been set aside. We've been consecrated to the Lord. Uh, he bought us. He owns us. Our lives are to be lived for him. But they're lived through faith, and it's lived by following him, obedience to his commands. Um, and we're to be telling our children. Constantly telling them. Or those of you who are grandparents, telling your grandchildren. Or those of you who are great grandparents, telling your great grandchildren. Tell them about the faithfulness of God. Uh, any comments or questions before we finish? Yeah, you know what would have been um, I was actually thinking as you were talking Deuteronomy 8.2 you don't have to turn there it says you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commands so um, you know what would have been really a good thing to do, maybe we do it next week. Uh, I, I bet you every one of you who followed God for any period of time in this room can tell about how you wanted to go from point A to point B, but God took you a long, difficult route around there. And, and why does he do that? So that we learn to trust him. And we look back on it years later and we say, now I understand. Or maybe we don't. Maybe like Joseph, we have to trust that somebody else will carry our bones and will promise them. We don't, we don't have any promise that we will know why he did what he did, only that he will be faithful to lead us and to guide us. Yeah, well, th yeah, they needed 40 years, 
they actually needed one whole generation to die off so that they were no longer um, because they weren't they weren't ready to not be slaves anymore. And there's also, if you want analogies too, you have Jesus who was led into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. Um, but he successfully overcame temptation. The Israelites didn't, but they died in the wilderness. So. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer.